Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 22nd of October 2018 and this is episode 86. On today's programme, I talk to Professor Richard Grayson, Professor of 20th Century History at Goldsmiths, the University of London, on his new book titled Dublin's Great Wars, published by Cambridge University Press. I spoke to Richard from his home in Hemel Hempstead. Hi Richard, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us how you became interested in the Great War? Hello, I'm Richard Grayson. I'm Professor of 20th Century History at Goldsmiths, University of London. I first became interested in the First World War, probably in the same way as many other Western Front Association members, through family connections. I was aware of photographs in family photo albums going back to the period of the First World War and knew at an early stage that my grandfather, Edward Grayson, had been in the Royal Flying Corps and then the Royal Air Force. And I knew also that my Uh, grandmother had lost a brother, James Powell, killed in the Second Royal Irish Rifles in September 1915. They were all from Lurgan in County Armagh. And that sparked both an interest in family history, but also the wider question of Ireland's involvement in the First World War. It wasn't something I came to work on professionally, Uh, until about 2005, when I'd gone back into academia and uh, was rather tired of the research that I was doing uh, on interwar British foreign policy and thought, you know what, I could actually do something that passionately interests me. And that's how I started working academically on the First World War from about 2005. So today we're going to talk about some of the outcomes of that research and your new book, Dublin's Great Wars. Can you tell us what this is about and why you decided to write it? The book Dublin's Great Wars is a parallel story of men who were involved in the British military during the First World War and also those who were involved in the wider Irish Revolution, which you can date roughly from the uh, Home Rule Crisis, which flared up in 1912 to the uh, end of the Irish Civil War in 1923. Uh, It is very much dominated by the First World War simply because of the numbers involved. Uh, But what I wanted to do for the first time was to put those two conflicts together in one narrative and show how many crossovers there were between them and how they were interrelated in many different ways. Indeed, even in the years prior to the First World War, for example, the main first chapter begins in the South African War and focuses on two men who would play very different roles in the Easter week of uh, 1916, one uh, as a rebel uh, and one killed at Hullock serving in the Dublin Fusiliers. So the three events that you discuss in your book, the Great War, the Easter Rising and the Irish Revolution, how have these been traditionally viewed by historians in Ireland and the UK? Well, they need to be separated in in lots of ways. If I start with the First World War, obviously many of your listeners will be familiar with the standard British narrative of the First World War, which is replayed at, at Armistice Day and on Remembrance Sunday 
has been fed by the war poets and so on. That is overlaid in Northern Ireland with a particular interest in the fortunes of the 36th Ulster Division, who had been ready to fight in a civil war uh, against the Irish volunteers had Home Rule been imposed by the London government. But they joined the British Army. They uh, make heavy sacrifices on the Somme in July 1916. And their story of loss becomes part of the foundation story of the new Northern Ireland state. Now, if we go south of the border, what is now the Republic of Ireland, we see very different historical preoccupations with the rebels of Easter 1916, the main heroes and heroines as well uh, of that period. And although war, war, the First World War was commemorated in the new Irish Free State after the war, those men who served in the British forces were quite rapidly forgotten because their story of service was not part of the foundation narrative of, of the new independent Irish state. Uh, if you take the wider Irish revolution and think about how it's viewed in Ireland and the UK, well, in one part of the UK, it's very well known in Northern Ireland. But uh, I, I think most people in England, Scotland and Wales have very sparse knowledge of the War of Independence that followed the First World War and the uh, subsequent Irish Civil War. And of course, in the Republic of Ireland, the Irish Revolution is remembered in very complex ways, partly as part of a triumphal story of throwing off British rule, but also with uh, bitterness and division because of the Civil War that followed uh, in, in the new Irish Free State. So to tell the stories of the military service of men and women in, in Dublin, and that includes obviously the county and the city of Dublin between 1912 and 1923, what methodologies did you adopt? I used methodologies that I'd developed in a book that I published in 2009 called Belfast Boys, How Unionists and Nationalists Fought and Died Together in the First World War. I used labels such as military history from the street uh, and socio-military history to describe that methodology. And what was novel about it was that in contrast to some other studies, which when they are focused on telling the First World War story of a geographic area, tend to look at the units that are known to be linked to that area. I was interested in finding out about the stories of everybody from one part of Belfast, West Belfast in this case, uh, the Falls and the Shankill. Uh, and I was interested in doing that because when I actually began Belfast Boys, I, I was largely focused on the well-known uh, local units, in particular the 9th Royal Irish Rifles and the 6th Connaught Rangers. Uh, obviously, the Connaught Rangers aren't local to Belfast, but they uh, recruited many Belfast nationalists. Uh, but I rapidly found that many of the interesting stories I was finding uh, in various sources were not about those units. And of course, they'd be about men in the Royal Navy and the Royal Engineers and the Army Service Corps, uh, as well as a wide range of uh, infantry regiments that were not Irish regiments. So I started out by using local newspapers and uh, I then supplemented that with things like church memorial roles if they had addresses, pensions and service records were incredibly important. And then 
I built up a database. And that's exactly what I tried to do with uh, the Dublin book, supplemented because I was looking closely at Irish Republicans, supplemented by the pensions records that were given to those with Republican service uh, from the 1920s and 1930s in different stages by different Irish governments. So before we come on to discuss the period of 1912 to 1923 in detail, I wonder whether we could go back um, sort of 10, 15, 20 years and look at the motivations and traditions of military service of the citizens of the, the wider Dublin area before the Great War. Dublin very much dominated Irish recruitment. If you take the city and the county of Dublin, it's roughly 11% of the population of, of the whole of the island. Uh, but they accounted for around 30% of military recruitment in the Edwardian period. One of the things that's interesting about that, though, is that you'd think they would all be joining their local regiment, the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. But in fact, Dublin's quite unusual compared to the rest of Ireland, apart from Belfast, in that around two thirds of those enlisting pre-war were not in the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. They just went in a range of other directions. Uh, and and that actually has quite significant implications for the kind of book I decided to write about Dublin service, because although the Royal Dublin Fusiliers certainly loom larger than any other regiment when we get on to wartime recruitment, I was also concerned to try and reflect the fact that men would have served in a very wide range of other units. Though all of the three events that you discuss, um, that being the Great War, the East Rising and the Irish Revolution, are intimately linked, for simplicity's sake, could you give a brief overview of Dubliner service in each of these um, happenings? I think some numbers might help, first of all, for the First World War. I, I identified around 25,000 individuals serving in the British military, and because of the records lost uh, in 1940, when the Arnside Street Depository was was bombed uh, during the Blitz, uh, that probably means that around 35,000 served, plus some officers and naval and air service that it's, it's difficult to quantify. That certainly gets towards official figures of, of nearly 40,000. All but 20 of those are men in the British military. The, the, the women would be, for example, in uh, Queen Alexandra's nursing corps. Around six and a half thousand were dead, and I've got queries over another uh, six hundred more who may may or may not have been dead. Largely, those are people reported dead in the newspapers, but it's difficult to verify. And in some cases, you know that they're taken prisoners. In addition to that, in support of the British military war effort, there are nearly four thousand people mobilised in the Red Cross, and ninety percent of those are women. And certainly many of those are carrying out nursing duties, but they're also doing things like preparing packages to send out to the front to soldiers. Uh, those people who are in action or involved in the Great War are involved from first to last. So one of the people who is just completely forgotten in the narratives is a, a sailor called Pierce Murphy, who was on the HMS Amphion when it was sunk on the 5th of August. Now, the 5th of August and that ship are the first UK fatalities of the war effort. And Dublin was there at the very beginning. And men are, uh, if not killed in action on the 11th of November 1918, they're certainly dying of wounds then or soon after. I would always pick out the importance of the regulars 
in any of these stories because I do feel that they are overshadowed by the volunteer battalions. And that's particularly the case with Dublin, which has had its focus on the Dublin Pals, specifically D Company of the 7th Royal Dublin Fusiliers at Gallipoli. And the uh, the second Royal Dublin Fusiliers on the Western Front are tremendously important in 1914-15. And they are the battalion in which the largest number of, of Dubliners served throughout the war. And of course, the volunteer battalions are incredibly important, uh, certainly at Gallipoli, when the 10th Irish Division lands there in August, but also perhaps in surprising ways on the 1st of July 1916, which we very much think of the Ulster Division's battle in an Irish context. Uh, there are Dubliners serving in the uh, Ulster Division in the 9th Royal Inniskillen Fusiliers because they are Dublin loyalists. So that story of Dublin loyalism is something that I've tried to write back into the story. As regards the Easter Rising, it, it's the dominant event of Irish history in the 20th century. Uh, I found uh, around 2,100 Dubliners who were involved in Dublin during the Rising. 233 of them women and around 1,900 were men. Uh, there were a lot more arrests as well of people with uh, no apparent Rising connection. I think perhaps 480 Dubliners were arrested without having been involved in the rising at all. And of course, that leads to bitterness. And ultimately, at the time of the uh, Anglo-Irish truce in 1921, the IRA's Dublin Brigade numbers five and a half thousand, uh, mainly men. So this is uh, these are large numbers of people involved. And what the book does is is pick out the key moments of the war where Dubliners are involved and uh, also the key moments of the Irish Revolution. And actually, perhaps unsurprisingly, it turns out that it's, it's any major incident you could care to mention. So in the conclusion, you point to the lives and activities of three men. They are Emmett Dalton, Robert Callaghan and Michael McCabe, as embodying the military service of Dublin through the period you examined. Could you tell us a bit about each of these individuals and, and how they are represented of Dubliners' military service for Crown, Revolution and Republic? I picked these three men, not necessarily because they were typical, but because aspects of their story illuminated a key point of the narrative I was writing, which was a narrative of service in the British military that hasn't been discussed in, in Dublin, but also crossovers between the First World War and the Irish Revolution. All three of these men served in the British military. If I take Robert Callaghan first, uh, he's somebody who enlists in the 7th Dublin Fusiliers, so he's very much part of the story of the Powell's Battalion, uh, but he's horribly wounded at uh, Salonica, where he's shot through uh, the side of his face and the bullet goes behind both of his eyes and destroys the nerves and he's blind and he has much treatment in the uh, in the early 20s at Queen Mary's in Sidcup. He also had an ongoing battle with the War Office, who had slightly overpaid his pension, slightly but for some time, and sought to recoup the money. Uh, and this, I thought, was a very interesting insight into the way in which the war continued to affect people's lives after it had, uh, after it had ended in 1918. The other two, Emmett Dalton and Michael McCabe, well, they were both people 
who served in both the British military and uh, the uh, Republican forces at different stages. In Dalton's case, he's from a middle class Catholic nationalist family who would be very supportive of the British war effort when the war breaks out. Uh, he enlists. He serves on the Somme. He's with Tom Kettle when he uh, when he's killed. Ginchy in September 1916. Uh, Tom Kettle is a really prominent figure for Ireland's war because he's a former nationalist MP and he becomes a symbol of the way in which nationalists have supported the British war effort, as does uh, Willie Redmond, who's also killed. Kettle wins the military cross on the Somme and he uh, later serves in various theatres of war. He's briefly at Salonika, he's in the Middle East, and then he's on the Western Front in the, in the Hundred Days. Having come back to Dublin, he decides to join the IRA. His reasons are unclear, but his brother was already involved and he rose rapidly in IRA ranks, partly because of his ability to impersonate a, a British officer, which is deployed on at least two occasions and leads the British in Dublin to believe that when anything happens, Emmett Dalton is behind it. Dalton is um, with Michael Collins in London negotiating the Anglo-Irish Treaty. When the Irish Civil War breaks out, uh, Dalton is a key figure because he secures guns from the British who are still in Dublin to fire on the four courts. Uh, he's also with Michael Collins uh, when he's killed during the Civil War. And I think it's very interesting that this man crosses through all these stages of this incredibly turbulent period of history. And he's with two of the iconic figures, Tom Kettle and Michael Collins, when they're killed. He becomes, during the Civil War, disillusioned about the execution of Republican prisoners by the Irish Free State and ends up living in England in the interwar period, having been a, a whiskey salesman and a, a film salesman and then getting into filmmaking. Actually, British forces, British security services tried to recruit him as a spy during the Second World War, but he, uh, but he didn't join up. Right to the end of his life, despite the fact that he had been a Republican hero, he tried to commemorate the dead of the British Army from Dublin as well. And he was quite unusual in that. So I thought his story should be told. Michael McCabe, the third man, we have less information on. But to summarise what we know, he's 15 during the Easter Rising. He takes part in the Rising, having just joined the Irish Volunteers. He's imprisoned by the British. They realise he's 15, let him out of prison after a week. And then in 1917, he joins the King's Own Royal Lancaster Regiment. He's wounded in 1918. He stays in that until 1922, when he's in Dublin and deserts. Now, you might think that if he was going to get involved in the Civil War on one side or another, being an ex-British soldier, he'd be more likely to be pro-treaty. But in fact, he joins the anti-treaty forces. He's captured by the Free State. He's imprisoned. And he next shows up in the records in 1938 when he's applying for a pension for his Republican service. And his address then is the British Royal West African Regiment. So he's rejoined the British Army. He serves through the Second World War, comes out in 19. 46 and he next shows up in the records when he dies it's his death certificate he's listed as a bachelor his occupation is said to be retired british soldier 
So despite all his service in Republican forces and living in a state in which that would have been very much venerated, it was his identity as a British soldier which uh, clung on to him to the very end in his death certificate. Now, we, we can speculate all we like about why he joined these different forces at different times. Perhaps he just liked military life. But nevertheless, he shows that a very uh, simplistic and sectarian narrative of history uh, will not work for some individuals who at different times have been buffeted by different currents of history and therefore made perhaps seemingly contradictory decisions. Finally, your book is available by, from Cambridge University Press. Christmas is coming up. And yes. where is it available? So every bookshop in Dublin will have it. Uh, but otherwise, you can get it from all good bookshops and your usual online suppliers. Richard, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.